Well, I'll give you this much. You're doing a good job leading singing, and this is a first. Unless I know number 692, there's not a song on that board I've ever sung before. And I've been in the church all my life. I didn't think that could happen. I don't even know the invitation song. The words look familiar, but the tune is one with which I am not familiar. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Boy, it's good to see you. This is a fantastic crowd, especially for a Monday night, because especially kind of, you know, I'm not, I mean, we're not out in the country country, but we're a little bit out in the country, and I know that, you know, Mondays are typically wash day, and I know that several of you ladies got up about daylight this morning and gathered up all the clothes. Of course, first you had to go out and chop the wood if you couldn't get your shiftless husband to do it for you, and then you had to start the fire under that big old kettle and uh, get the water in there and get it good and hot and then take some of that octagon, or as some folks say, oxygen soap, and slice it real thin slivers and drop it in there until it all gets kind of good and soapy and hot. And Then you take the clothes and you... You know, and, and you take that scrub board and hopefully you got some thimbles because if you don't, your, your, your ends of your fingers are just going to be in horrible shape. And then if you're real fortunate when you get that number two wash tub filled up with clean water and if you're lucky you've got one of those, at least you got a ringer where you can kind of get some of that water out that have them do it by hand. And then you finally get the soap all out after you've whooped the dirt out of them and then you hang them on the line and you pray it doesn't rain and, you know, and then you got to cook breakfast and lunch and, you know, it, it, Mondays are tough. Actually, I've never even come close to seeing any of what I just talked about, but uh, I've heard my dad explain it, and I'm sure that wasn't very close, but some of you probably saw something similar to that growing up, did you not? Anybody ever slice the soap and have actually use the wash? Oh, really? Okay. So we're not that far removed from, uh, from the real world, the way it used to be, but we have all our modern conveniences today. You know, I mean, if your computer doesn't immediately come up with a new screen when you hit the button, it's too slow. If that cell phone doesn't, you know, just that service doesn't just pop up, that it's, it's just not good enough. If the microwave takes too long, I sit there tapping my fingers like I can't stand for the popcorn because it takes, you know, a minute and a half. And, you know, I mean, it's amazing. And yet, with all of our time-saving, labor-saving devices, we don't even build front porches anymore, and nobody has time to sit on them if you have one. And rocking chairs are almost a thing of the past. And knowing who your neighbors are, unless you're lucky, you probably don't. Most of us don't anymore. Because unless you see them out cutting grass from the same time you're cutting grass, they get home, they close their door, you get home, you close your door. It's a different world, isn't it? Now, if you've ever been to another country that would be would consider like a third world country, I've made several trips to South America to the country of Guyana. And down there, they still, they don't even use washboards. They beat the dirt out of the clothes with a big old paddle. I mean, until the dirt just finally says, I surrender, and just crawls off, you know. And clothes don't last long down there. They beat them out on a rock, and then they hang them out, hang them up. And, and the women, a lot of them still cook over mud stoves that they made themselves with kindling. And, and yet, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, for the most part, they've always got time to sit and talk to you. They cut whatever grass they might happen to have in their mud yard with a sickle. Well, I take that back. Actually, they cut it with a machete most of the time. They make their own brooms, and I've seen them many times out there sweeping the dirt yard, and yet they have time to sit and talk. They have no money, and the husband, they have to scrounge and scramble and make a buck anywhere they can, but all of them, men and women alike, for the most part, have time to sit and chat and but we live in the greatest country in the world regardless whether we have time to sit and chat. And, you know, time is important. And I realize as a preacher that time is important. You wouldn't have known it yesterday morning. But yesterday afternoon we did okay. We were pretty much out of here by the 
up and down 3 o'clock. So I think we did all right. And I can see that clock over there. So every now and then I'm going to look at it. Of course, you really, you know what it means when a preacher looks at a clock, don't you? Nothing. That's exactly right. Absolutely nothing. A very familiar passage in the book of Proverbs. The wise man wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That is such an important principle that we so desperately need to learn. Even those of us who have been children in God's family for many years still need to remember this principle, that we need to turn it over to God. If you want a topic, a title for tonight's lesson, which I could not remember last night, and while it's on my mind, by the way, Wednesday night, I said I remembered that when we'll talk about the importance of a healthy self-image. It's called You Are Somebody. And then tomorrow night, Lord willing, if I remember correctly, we will look at how do you handle your Golgotha. In other words, what do you do and where do you turn when there's nothing you can think of to do and there's nowhere to turn? How do you handle it when life's rug has been pulled out from under your feet and you can't find a place to stand up? What do you do? That's tomorrow night. And tonight we are looking at ballooning with God. You ever see those hot air balloons up in the air? I mean, isn't that just the coolest thing? In Decatur, Alabama, where I live now, we have every Memorial Day weekend the Decatur Jubilee Festival. And ballooners come from all over. And these guys and ladies that pilot and fly and enjoy these hot air balloons, and they'll, we'll have a special, uh, the evening of, you know, but like, I think it's on Saturday that they typically, and Sundays afternoons, they have most of their balloon races and things, but I think it's Friday night, usually they'll have what they call the lighting of the balloons or whatever, and they'll, it'll be after dark, and they'll have some of them, and they'll fill them up with that hot air, and they'll have spotlights on them, and it's just really, really pretty. But, you know, often I've looked at, at different times in my life, and I've, you know, I've seen these hot air balloons. You don't see them very often, but every now and then you'll see one up in the air, and it's just, isn't it so neat looking, just so peaceful? You know, doesn't it just look like the ideal situation? I mean, assuming that wicker basket doesn't fall apart or anything, but doesn't it just look like that would be so cool to be up there, not a care in the world, quiet, just enjoying the breeze, free as a bird, floating just so peacefully and effortlessly through the air? And that may happen every now and then. But have you ever been anywhere close to one? when they're flying or when they're filling up especially, it is unbelievable how much noise those things make. <laughs> to get that hot air heated and blowing up in there. And then if, you get, if you're ever close to one when it's flying, every time they want to rise, they have to pull and get more. And <laughs> I'm assuming they probably wear earmuffs or hearing protection. It is ridiculously loud. You can hear them from hundreds of yards away. It is amazing that peaceful, serene-looking scene is actually a constant moving and noise and adjustments, and, and it's just, and, and it's amazing. You know, that's not really the point we want to make tonight, but it's not nearly as peaceful as it may look. And then you look at those balloons, and sometimes, man, they're just racing across the sky. And other times, they seem like they're kind of like a helicopter just hovering, just kind of hanging there. And, of course, we know why. Because even though that balloon may have a pilot in that basket underneath it, that pilot and any of his passengers and that balloon, they're at the mercy of an unseen force. When they are in the air, they are going to go in the direction of an invisible force. You can't see it. Oh, you can feel it. 
and you can see the results of it as it whistles through the treetops and, and the limbs and the flags stand out. But you can't see the wind, but they are always at the mercy of that invisible force called wind. That pilot, though he has a whole lot to do with where that balloon comes down and to the best of his ability, he can somewhat control where it goes, but in reality, he's never completely in control. It's ultimately up to that wind that dictates so much of where those balloons go. See, we need to understand it's all about trusting the unseen. And there's times at Jubilee that those balloons are not allowed to go up. Why? Because too much wind. Or the wind is blowing absolutely in a wrong direction that could push those balloons to a place where it might be dangerous and they would have no place to land. Or the, the wind is just blowing too hard. And generally speaking, that pilot is not going to take that balloon up unless he has confidence in that force that he can't see, called wind. He knows where he needs to go. He knows what the wind's going to do. And he's not going to go up there unless he has trust in that unseen force. And as we try to soar above the mundane things of this life as children of God, as we strive to rise above the entanglements and the temptations that this world has to offer, we need to realize that we are at the power or we should be subject to the power of an unseen force. The book of John, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And even though we have never seen God, just like I've never seen the wind, I know the wind is there, because I've seen the results. It's been revealed to me by the rustling of the leaves. And the flag unfurling and my hair getting blown and, you know, some of y'all used to remember what that was like, don't you guys, when you had hair? Never mind. Anyway, the point is that we know the wind is there. It's proven to us that it, even though we don't see it, same with God. Because, see, Jesus, we've never seen him personally, but Jesus came and revealed God to us through his life and through his words. Again, from the book of John, chapter 14, this time beginning at verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You recall that 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John began in verse 1 where he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Thomas said, Lord, and he says, you know, the where I go you know and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And that's when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then a little bit later, Philip said, well, show us the Father. And that was his response. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not understand that's the reason I came to earth? Do you not understand that I am here to reveal God, to reveal through my life and my teachings and the works that I do, the kind of being that God my Father in heaven is? 
And in John chapter 20, verse 29, at this point, Jesus has been crucified. It's the third day after the feeds resurrected from the grave on that third day as it began to dawn, as Mark put it toward the first day of the week. Those ladies had come and, and they had seen the empty tomb and the stone rolled away and the young man in white and he's risen, he's not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's coming to see him. And John records in chapter 20, verse 29, that account with Thomas. You remember the first time Jesus showed up in the locked room behind closed doors, Thomas was not there. And then later Thomas comes in and they said, we've seen the Lord. And he said, I won't believe it until I've seen the wound in his side from the spear and the print of the nails in his hands. And then several days later, Jesus appeared to them again. And this time Thomas was there. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, go ahead, put your hand into the wound on my side. Put your finger in the print of the nail. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There is an unseen force. In fact, there's more than one. I would like to stand here and say that God is the only unseen force at work in this world, but we all know that's not true, don't we? The Bible teaches, if it teaches anything, it also teaches us that there is an evil at work, that Satan is out there. And the sad truth is that the vast majority of mankind is blown more by the winds of Satan than by the force of God. And God encourages us, as we talked about Peter yesterday being a rock, God encourages us to be that rock that is not blown about by all of these temptations and false doctrines and all of those things, and yet it happens. It happens all the time. But true Christianity, when we think about God as the unseen force, real Christianity, it's all about trusting in what I haven't literally seen but I know it's there. See, faith is not just some blind leap in the dark. I don't believe in God just because somebody told me to. I don't believe in God just because the Bible says, I believe in God because it's obvious. I mean, look around. Look in the mirror and explain yourself. If there's no one that designed you, you explain to me or any other person how you got here. And why you look like you do and why your hands work like they do and how come your eyes can see and how come your ears can hear and, and how does all that work? If nobody planned all that, how, how, to, how to explain yourself? And then you know, look at the beauty of nature. Look at the universe as a whole, what little we know about it as, as humanity. And we know a great deal more than we did just not that many years ago. But it has always amazed me, always amazed me. And I'm not, I'm not into, you know, we have, we have a physics professor, so he understands a lot more about this. But I'm not into all of that stuff. But I know for years now, for decades, NASA and others, you know, from Russia and ever, other planets, it's amazing because of the speed of the revolution of this planet, the orbits of the other of the round as it orbits around the sun and the moon as it revolves around the earth and turn and all of the things that happen. They know when they can put that rocket on the pad down there at Cape Canaveral in Florida, and they know there's a certain time frame that they have that they can blast that thing off into space at a certain trajectory and all of the stuff, and they can figure it all out before it ever even fires up the first engine and know that days later that thing can orbit the moon. How do they know that? 
Well, they just got lucky because the universe just runs in haphazard. You know, no. They know that because it has been proven over and over and over again that there is a system, there is a design to this solar system in which you and I live. And the more we learn, we learn that the whole thing works together. And amazingly, some of those same folks are the ones that are trying to figure it out, saying, well, it couldn't be God, so what else can it be? And no one has come up with it yet. It's amazing to me. In fact, I was just reading, I was just catching up on my Decatur paper today from, uh, what is this, from Friday, I guess it was, because Saturday is still sitting on the table in the motel room. And there was a brief article about the Republican presidential debate that I guess took place the night. I, don't, I remember seeing part of it. I don't remember what night it was. But anyway, of the nine or so candidates, one of the men asked, how many of raise your hand if you do not believe in evolution? Only three of them raised their hand. But at least three of them raised their hand. But it amazes me that otherwise intelligent people cannot look around and see that something, even if you don't want to accept what Genesis has to say, something has to explain everything I can see. And the universe is breaking down. It's not getting better. Everything generates toward chaos, not toward order, but toward disorder. It started and has gotten worse, in a sense, ever since. Well, how come if it's evolving, it's not getting better? No, I've never heard that one explained to me yet. And that seems pretty simple. That ought to be, somebody ought to be able to figure that out. The point is, God is out there. And then when I look at his word, when I look in nature, I see the existence of an unseen force. Something much more intelligent and powerful than myself. But I don't know what that is, but when I come to his word, ah, I learn exactly who it is. And I not only get to see the expression of his power out there in what I can see in the natural world, but I even begin to understand what makes him tick. I begin to understand his heart and his mind and how he so loves me that he sent his only begotten son to die for me, for Alan Watkins, little old me, because he knew I was coming one day, and so he knew that I wouldn't be able to make it by myself, so he let his son die. So I would have a chance to go to him when this life is over. And he did the same thing for you, and for you, and for you, and for everybody that has ever graced this wonderful planet. Jesus Christ gave his life. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's not a leap in the dark. It's reality. It's the only reasonable, logical response to the world in which I live and the God that gave me this book. Only honest, reasonable response is faith, trust. And that's what life is all about, trusting in that unseen force. I must commit my trust into the hands of God. Now, the truth is, it's not always going to be a smooth flight. You know, I'm not going to stand up here like the televangelists and tell you that if you become a child of God, then everything's going to be fine. You won't have any more troubles because Jesus Christ got killed for doing what God said. So he had a few problems as we would look at problems, you know, for following the will of the Father. So I can't stand here and say, because Jesus never said, In fact, what Jesus did say is, in this world, you will have trouble if you follow me. But then he said, don't worry about it. I've overcome the world. 
if I never have any problems because of my faith, if I get along with everything and everybody all the time and never run into any obstacles because of my commitment to God, then I probably ought to check my commitment to God because something's not right because the world we live in, every now and then, the child of God is going to be at odds with something. And if I'm not, I'm not saying we're rabble-rousers. We're not fanatics. Jesus Christ wasn't a fanatic. However, he ran into problems. Paul ran into problems. Timothy, all of them. Peter, all of them ran into problems. Why? Because they were bad guys? No, because they followed Christ. I need to check my faith if I never seem to be given any kind of hard time because I'm a child of God. I need to commit. It will not always be easy. Many of us have been Christians most of our lives and yet have suffered a lot of things. I know people who have lost loved ones that I can't begin to explain why that would happen to somebody as unbelievably good as that individual was. But it happens. Because as I said earlier, there's another unseen force out there always working in the opposite direction. We need to give ourselves over to God. And sometimes the problem I have with that is just like when I look up there at those balloons. You know, they look so nice. But you know that basket underneath that big old balloon? It's not that big. I don't know how big they are. A four by four? I don't. It, they're just not that big. And you know, once you get off the ground and you commit to that pilot, you commit to that balloon. Once you're up off the ground, you're pretty. You're right there. I mean, there isn't a lot of running around going on. You're not going to step out of the basket without some, you know, rather dire consequences. That's kind of a small basket, and that's exactly what happens way too often when we try to share with people the grace and the mercy and the love and compassion of God and the salvation that's available through His Son and then make the point that God makes that if I want to truly enjoy all of that, I need to give my life to Him. I need to do it His way. And sometimes even Christians have problems with this. Well, wait, you know, why? Why Why His basket? Why can't I get in my own basket and just let the balloon be God's let me get in. Why do I have to get in God's basket? I mean, you know, that, it's so small. It's so restrictive. It, there's so many things I can't do if I become a child of God. I mean, you know, I can't this, I can't that, I can't this. We never seem to look at, I can this, I can have fellowship, I can have peace, I can sleep at night, I can get up in the morning not worrying about where I was yesterday. I can know that if I don't get up in the morning, it's even better than if I do get up. It's an amazing life. And yet we tend to focus on what I can't do. And I don't, I don't want to get in here. I don't want to do it his way. Why can't I do it my way? Because ultimately, if I want to enjoy the life that soars above the problems, I've got to do it his way. You know, now if I'm, I have never been up in a hot air balloon. One of these days, maybe. I don't know. But it, I mean, I love to watch, look at them. And I'm, you know, it's not that I'm terribly afraid of flying. I'm not real comfortable on airplanes even. And, you know, at least they've got something going for them. Of course, one thing they don't have going for them is that engine stops in the airplane. It will not soar. It will not float. It will not glide. It will drop like a rock. And I can't help but think about that. At least the balloon, as long as there's air up there, you know, it'll do something, I guess. But anyway, the point is, I know how it is when I get on an airplane. 
I don't know about you, but when we're taxiing down the runway and getting ready to take off, the first few minutes of that flight, because invariably, every, even the big ones, every, and I've been on a couple of little ones and then some big ones, and every time, you know, you get, especially the larger passenger, you know, the jumbo jets, you get up and you start going up and up and up, and then at some point up there, especially if you're sitting, you know, in, in coach or for whatever you call it where I always am and you can hear the engines roaring and the noise changes, you know, and then you kind of do this little thing, and I'm like, oh uh-oh, and it takes me about 25 or 30 minutes, and then I forget, you know, that I'm 30,000 feet above the ground sitting in a metal thing that if anything goes wrong, it will crash and burn, and I'll be inside of it, and I can actually look out the window and enjoy the scenery. You know, I'm sure it's the same way with that balloon. You put your foot over in that wicker basket, and as you begin to leave the ground, your first thought might be, yeah, don't let go of that rope down there yet, got him, but then, you know, and you're holding on to the edge, and I would think that, as you get accustomed to your surroundings, you begin to kind of relax and you gain a bit of confidence. And then what happens? Oh, then, then you look down at the patchwork of the farmland, of the, of the cities, of the, the homes, the trees, the beauty, the rivers, the lakes, wherever you are, and you enjoy the unbelievable scenery. And that's the way it is with God. Yeah, the first time, I, when I first get in His basket... I may feel a bit restricted. It might be uncomfortable. The reason it's uncomfortable is because it goes against the natural man. All throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, there's the worldly man and the spiritual man. And Paul makes it very clear how that they battle against one another all the time. In fact, the book of Revelation, that's the battle of Armageddon, good and evil that goes on within my heart every day. That's the ultimate battle that determines eternal destiny for each of us. Whether good or evil wins out. And it's constant. And so when God asks me, give yourself to me, that goes against my survival instinct that he put into me. How do you think people can stay alive under such unbelievable circumstances sometimes physically? Man, most of us have a built-in survival thing that just says, do what you have to do to stay alive. People hang on sometimes, even unconscious, hang on to life just tenaciously. And yet, when God says, give it all to me, it's like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to run all of this. I'm not comfortable with that. I I don't like that idea. But you know what? When I make up my mind, it's called repentance, and I give myself to God in obedience, sure, and it will be uncomfortable sometimes. Perhaps my friends won't understand. And maybe there will be some activities that I used to enjoy because sin is enjoyable. There's no question about it. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be a temptation that I no longer need to do. And so maybe maybe it is a little odd. Maybe it is a little uncomfortable. Don't give up. That's normal. Just like if you're in the basket under the balloon right at first, you're not going to be real comfortable. But man, when you acclimate to your surroundings, it becomes a beautiful journey. When I fully give myself to God, that's when I'm free. When I am absolutely, totally dependent on God, I'm no longer in control. It's at that point that I am free, I am safe, and I'm secure. Because I'm being led by God Almighty. And we say, yeah, but how can I let go? Let go and enjoy real freedom. Yeah, but that makes me 
Well, Paul, in fact, wrote about it, Romans 6.22, but now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Well, then what's the big benefit? I was a slave to sin, now I'm a slave to God, I'm a slave either way. What, what, why should I bother? Because servitude to God is where true freedom is found. Because when I depend upon God, I know as a loving father, just like you with your children, you will never intentionally do anything to hurt them, particularly to hurt them for eternity. Now, we're not perfect like God is, and we do hurt our children, and we do let them down, and we do disappoint them, and we hopefully go back and apologize and ask for their forgiveness when we do. God never makes a mistake. When I fully give my life over to a loving father that is absolutely, absolutely perfect and holy and righteous, he will never, not even for a moment, lead me in a wrong direction, particularly as it relates to eternity. So it's when I become a slave to God that I am absolutely freed from sin, freed from all of those problems, free from condemnation, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus talked about it. John chapter 8, verse 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And he had already said, you know, in 31 and 32 of that 8th chapter of John, Continue in my word, abide in my word, and you will be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And it always does. I don't care what the arena of life may be. Truth sets you free. Two plus two, what is it? When you realize it's four, you don't have a problem anymore. You're set free from that equation. You know the answer. Two plus two is four. That's truth. It sets you free. Complication uh, equations get a whole lot more complicated, whether it's science or whatever it may be. When you have the truth, you're set free. And when it comes to matters of eternal nature, when I have the truth, I'm set free. I'm set free from all those things that can hold me back. I know you've heard this before, but it's true. I need to let go and let God. It's only when I climb into his basket under his balloon and let him fly the thing and trust and remember from our looking at Ezekiel 37, Sunday morning in Sunday school, when God told Ezekiel, prophesy, prophesy to the wind. Tell the wind, breathe on them that they may live. Remember, God is the God of the wind. When I climb into God's basket and I let him dictate through his control of the winds of life, I will find that my flight, though I may have a few rocky moments, there may be some turbulence from time to time, generally brought on by myself, God will always smooth it out. But the trick is, and the truth is, letting go is not easy. There's a lot of things that hold me back from a flight of faith. Pride, fear, wrong relationships, anger that I still have harbored in my heart against someone. See, I've got to let go of those things. I need to put to death, Colossians 3, 1 through 5, I need to put to death those things that are going to hold me back. And I need to let go and let God take me to a life 
that is absolutely beyond anything I can imagine. Perfect? No. No, if I could have been perfect, Jesus wouldn't have died. God would have just said, Alan, be perfect, and you'll be saved. But he didn't. He sent his only begotten son so that I can be saved. Because he knew I couldn't be perfect. But when I give my life over to him, it'll be a lot smoother sailing than if I try to run it myself. And the truth is, if I try to run it myself, it will not end where I want it to end. Sometimes, you know, you see those balloons up in the air, and those of us down here on the ground, we look up there with envy, thinking, man, wouldn't that be neat? Boy, I, you know, I wish I could do that. You know, it's just so peaceful looking, so serene. But some of those same folks that are sitting there thinking, man, I wish I could do that, are not convinced they would get in the basket if they were offered the chance. Oh, it looks good. Ooh, I'd love to, but I'm not certain that that's really what I want to do. So many of us, even in the church, we look at those folks that we know that in our eyes are those heroes of faith, and we look at them and we go, man, you know, I wish I had his life. I wish I could deal with life like she does. You know, look at that. I mean, I know they've had difficulties, but look at, look at, look at how they just go through life. They don't seem to get way up. They don't seem to get way down. Man, they just seem to soar. You know, boy, I wish I could. But when it comes right down to it, they're not certain to this day that they're ready to get in God's basket so they can soar like that. It's called commitment. Without it, there will be no flight of faith. Too many people chase after God just by practicing some form of religion. But the chase ends when I learn that there's nothing greater than knowing I have nothing to fear. Think about that for a minute. If I could live my life from today until the day that I die, however long that may be, and know every minute of every one of those days that I have absolutely nothing to fear, not in this life and not in the life to come, now, is that a peace of mind that the vast majority of people on this planet would like to have? Absolutely. They chase after it. There's so many things being done in the name of religion for the very purpose, for the reason that people are looking for purpose and peace in their lives. And here we sit with the answer. But all too often, people don't want to hear it from us because they haven't seen us get in God's basket yet. They hear us talk about it, but they haven't seen it. Not fully. Not yet. See, peace comes when there's no doubt, and that comes only when God is in control. Have you ever pillowed your head at night and wondered if you would go to heaven if you died before you woke up, then I need to get in God's basket. Because when I'm flying with God, I never wonder that. I don't have to have those kind of doubts. 
John in 1 John tells me I can know that I'm saved. And yet, here some of us still sit, watching those great heroes of faith soar in God's balloon, envious of the peace they seem to enjoy. Quit dreaming. Stop watching. Stop looking at everybody else enjoying all the thrills and the scenery. Get in the basket. Balloon with God. Don't worry about trying to run the ship by yourself. It isn't going to work. Oh, it may work for a while. And we all know people in the religious world who seem to have a peace that we don't even have. But if that peace is not based on truth, the balloon will come to an abrupt landing come the day of judgment. The only peace that will pass the fire of judgment, that will pass the absolute test of honesty that I must face, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that peace that's based on a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that comes from knowledge and application of this book right here. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen, And without faith, I can't please him. For they that come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews eleven six. Without believing in Jesus Christ, I'll die in my sins, John chapter 8, verse 24. Except you repent, you'll perish, Luke 13, 3. Repent and be converted. The time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3, verse 19. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And he said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Then Peter answered and said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Ananias said to him, Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. And he answered and said, If you believe with all your heart, if you believe in your house, you will be saved. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their stripes. And Paul and Silas taught the Philippian jailer and his family, and he and his family were baptized, and they rejoiced having believed. And in every case where someone is converted from a sinful state to a saved state. Every single time, from Acts 2, when the gospel was first proclaimed, that salvation came through Christ, for the rest of the book, every single time, the people were immersed in water, having believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God prior to that, and were baptized. 
Because, see, that's the only way I can get into Christ. Galatians 3.27. So the first step, if you will, into God's basket. Because remember, Jesus said, the Father's in me and I'm in him. If I want to get into the basket with God, I've got to be in Christ. I must be immersed in water for the forgiveness of my sins or I am not in Christ and consequently I can't be in God's basket and he's not flying my life, no matter what I might think. The challenge for us is to climb in and quit worrying about running it myself and let God have it. That's the challenge for the one who is outside Christ. That's the continual challenge for the one who is in Christ. Quit looking, quit watching, quit dreaming, get in, get into the basket with God and experience the true joy and the thrill and excitement of freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ, knowing, not wondering, not hoping as we define hope, not wishing, but knowing that when it's all said and done, if I stay in God's basket, He will fly me right through the pearly gates. Judgment will be difficult because I've got to look at all those things that I did wrong, but I've been forgiven. So in a way, it'll be a breeze, and He'll just fly me right through with a greater appreciation for all He's done. And I will be walking the street of gold by the river of life, sitting with the 24 elders and the 12 apostles around the throne of God, singing praises and enjoying the literal presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. That's what I want. It's what you want or you wouldn't be here. We'd be somewhere else doing something else if that wasn't what we were looking for. It might be that a public response tonight will enhance that journey. Perhaps as a child of God, there was a time when I did fly in God's basket and then some things happened and I kind of got frustrated and I kind of came to the conclusion, you know, God, if it's not always going to be perfect, I believe I can do a better job and I climbed out. And you know, I've been thinking for a while, I need to climb back in. And I'm kind of tired of standing down here on the ground and remembering what it used to be like when I really did fly with God, when I let him be my pilot, not my co-pilot. And I want to get back there. It doesn't require a public response, but if it would help, we're here. Or perhaps there's someone here, as was earlier said, that's never for the first time climbed into that basket with God by virtue of being born into the family, which is the church, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Come to Christ tonight. Come to him in faith, expressing that faith in confession, turning from sin, determining to live for God. It won't be perfect. If we're waiting till we're perfect, we'll never make it. God makes us complete, not ourselves. Come to him and let him wash the sins away in the blood of his son, contacted by a burial into his death through baptism. Romans 6, 3 and 4. The bottom line is this. If there's anyone here tonight that knows that a public response, all of us are going to respond. We're either going to say, I don't buy it. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. No thanks. Yes, and I'm going to recommit. But it may be that doing something publicly will have a greater positive effect in your life.
then folks, we're here for that purpose as well. If you need to respond, just come down front. This pew is empty, and you can do that right now while we stand and sing.